0: If you've been paying attention, we've heard this phrase, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people did. We've heard it repeated several times now. So far, the God's, God's people have followed his directions coming through Moses, but trouble, trouble's coming. It's coming. And how will they handle it? How will God's people deal with their sin, with their rebellion against this holy God who's promised to live in their presence. Well, well, God knows how to deal with it. And that's what he's going to give them this morning. He's going to teach them how they are to deal with these physical impurities that made them all unfit for his presence. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. He's going to uh, show them how to address the, fallings out, the falling outs and the feuds that they have between their, their neighbors and their brothers and their sisters. And he's going to teach them how to deal with this atrocious sin, the sin of adultery especially when it's impossible to prove. God's got answers for all of these things. And ultimately the answers to all of these things have a word to speak to us about the gospel, about the gospel. You see the the main idea, kind of the, the thing that we're driving at this morning in Numbers 5 is that God demands holiness for all of his people, for all of our relationships in our relationships with him, in our relationships with one another, in our relationships with our spouses. And it's only in Christ, it's only in Christ that we find the healing, the restoration, and the forgiveness that we need. Look at Numbers chapter five, verses one through four, and read along with me there in your Bibles. It's gonna be on the screen as well. The Lord spoke to Moses, there it is again, saying, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge in everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead, you shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. You can underline that. God is there. Verse four, and the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. He did. When you, when you jump in the car with maybe your buddies or your family to, to go on a camping trip, right, there are probably certain things that you think about, right? Probably certain uh, uh, check boxes that, that you want to check off. You probably think about, um, you know, what you'll pack. You know, maybe you've got one of those nice Yeti coolers that'll keep things cold for like 10 years. You think about the food that you're going to put in there, right? You probably think about where you're going to sleep, Right? Are you gonna sleep in a tent? Or are you gonna sleep in a sleeping bag? If you're, if you're like a hardcore backpacker, you may have one of those like fancy hammocks that you hang up between a tree and you're like a, a human burrito wrapped up for a bear to eat kind of thing. Maybe that's what you do. Um, you, if you're a glamper, you might have an air mattress, right? You might, you might think about those things. Now, if you're my wife, the first thing that you're gonna think about, and I asked for permission before I said this, so nobody, get going get mad at me. If you're my wife, there's one requirement for camping a functioning bathroom. Toilet, I mean latrines and porta-potties do not count. So, before the trip is even started, if we don't have access to a functioning bathroom, trip's over, right? These are the things that you think about before you ever get started when you go camping. But of all these decisions, you think about all of these decisions, they become immensely more important and more serious when it's not just you and your family or a couple of buddies, but it's actually you and 2 million of your closest friends and relatives. Think, think about this scene here in the desert with these people in the book of Numbers. Everyone's hot. Everyone is sweaty and needs a shower. And everyone has got to go to the bathroom at some point, right? Everyone's going to have to go to the bathroom. Cleanliness and camp hygiene were of the utmost importance to these guys. Because one person who doesn't wash their hands... He could take down thousands of people with his sickness, with his disease. So what we see here in verses one through five is God has given instructions to his people about hygiene, about quarantine, right? We're, we're really familiar with the word quarantine now, aren't we? Unfortunately, we're all familiar with it because of, because of the coronavirus. The, the sick and the highly contagious here in Numbers, they must be quarantined outside of the camp for the safety of of everybody. There's a real practical reason for these instructions that God is giving to his people. And notice that it's not gender specific, right? It's male or female. If you've contracted one of these highly contagious diseases that are listed here in Numbers 5, 1 through 5, you were considered unclean. Unclean. And God's instruction was that you were to be quarantined outside the camp until you were, one, fully healed, or until you could properly wash or enough time had gone by and it was proven that you were no longer sick, right? And there, there are instructions for all of this in the book of Leviticus that we're not gonna take time to go look at, but they're all there. Now, these, these sicknesses, these diseases, they included the leprous, right? But, but leprosy, it's, it's more than just what we think about in the New Testament. If you've read through the New Testament, you've probably heard the word leprosy before. Uh, the actual name for it is Hansen's disease and uh, limbs fall off, all of this crazy stuff happens, right? But, but here in Numbers, it's more of a, a general term for any kind of like skin illness, skin disease, right? It included things like um, uh, discharges or, or hemorrhaging. Think about the woman in the Gospel of Luke that has a problem with bleeding. That made her unclean, something very similar to here, right? And finally, what's listed here is anyone who comes into contact with a dead body, right? With a dead body. In such a large group, remember we said there's millions of people in this camp, people would have died every day. There would have been funerals going on literally every day. And in the desert heat, without modern uh, embalming techniques, burying your loved one, meant that you had come into contact with something that could be deadly for everybody. This is about quarantine and hygiene. But, but what Moses wants us to think about, the thing he's doing, he wants us to ask this question, I mean, surely right? Surely God can handle a few sick people, right? He just parted a red sea. He just parted an ocean behind them. Surely he can handle a few sick people. No one would ever fault a grieving widow who kisses her, her husband on his forehead before his body is laid in the ground. Surely God can handle this. This must be about more than hygiene. And if you're asking that question, you're absolutely right. It's about more than hygiene. Notice what verse three said. God is in the camp. And what do we know about God? What's been on refrain so far throughout Numbers 1 through 4 and now 5? It's that God is holy. This idea of of purity, of cleanliness, it's about more than just clear skin and clean hands, right? The It's about someone or something's suitability to be in God's presence. That's what being clean in the Old Testament is all about. If you were clean, you were suitable to be in God's presence. If you were unclean, you were unsuitable to be in God's presence because God is holy. The the leper's skin, if you will, right, That, that was covered in infected boils, it was just a symptom. It was a symptom that pointed to something greater, a greater kind of infection that was true for these people, and it's true for all of us. It's, a, it's an infection that no amount of soap can wash off, no amount of antibiotic can cure. These people and all of us, they were infected by death. It's important that death, touching a dead body, is mentioned last in this list. Because Moses wants us to see something. That all of these diseases, they pointed to something that was true of all of the people. That was ultimately true of all of them and all of us. That they were infected, they had been touched by death. They had been touched by death. We, we see the touches of death in our physical bodies every day, don't we? Right? In the moment of our birth, as we waste away... as as we age and as we suffer from sickness and disease. And all of this is ultimately the cause of sin. I'm not drawing a straight line here. I'm not saying that you have some disease because you committed some sin. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm saying is that ultimately, all of our sicknesses, all of our frailties, all of those things ultimately can be traced back to our fall into sin. You see, our uncleanliness, the uncleanliness here, it goes much further than, than skin deep. Even our hearts are contaminated with death and sin. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah describes it in Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah writes, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Because of sin, all Death is all over us. These highly contagious diseases that we see here in Numbers 5, they were just a sign of death's presence in the people's lives and they're ultimately a sign to death's presence in all of our lives. We we need someone, in the words of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, chapter 7, 24, verse 24, we need someone who can free us from this body of death that we're all living in. And friends, we have one who can make us clean. Jesus does something incredible in the gospel of Luke. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to it before, but in chapters five through eight, he does something incredible that is absolutely a throwback to Numbers chapter five. In chapter five, Jesus, he touches a leper. He touches a man who has actual leprosy but something incredible happens. Instead of Jesus being infected, the leper is healed. The leper is healed. A little later in, in chapter 8, Jesus is on his, he's he's traveling on this teaching circuit, and a, and a woman comes up to him, comes up to him, unbeknownst to Jesus, and touches the hem of his garment. This woman was considered unclean herself because she had a discharge of blood. She couldn't worship in the local synagogue. But again, something amazing happens. Jesus isn't made unclean by her touch. Jesus' touch heals her. She's made clean. She's healed instantly. And then a little later on in chapter eight, Jesus makes his way to this man named Jairus' house because his daughter is sick. And by the time Jesus arrives, his daughter lies dead in the bed and Jesus reaches out and places his hand on her hand. But Jesus, he isn't made unclean. His touch raises her to life. Raises her to life. My friends, as those who have placed their trust, their faith in Jesus, the Holy Son of God, we can trust that our sin doesn't contaminate him it doesn't make him clean his presence in our lives it actually makes us holy it makes us suitable to be in god's presence his holiness purifies us through faith we don't make him dirty he makes us clean he purifies our contamination with sin and death he heals us and he makes us fit for god's presence But the second thing that we see in Numbers 5 is this. In verses 5 through 10, we see a picture of sin as broken relationships, as broken relationships. Don't we all have them this morning? Don't we all have brokenness between, maybe some of you here this morning, maybe between loved ones that don't go to this church, maybe between your neighbors. We all have them. Listen to what Numbers 5, 5 through 10 says. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. Now, for a second time here, we see that phrase again. These are the command, these are God's commands. God is speaking these things to Israel. Moses and I are making these things up. And that's important as we work through numbers. Now, the language in verse 6 is a little bit tricky, right? Sins that people commit. What's that about? What's that about? Well, that's a, it's a general phrase for any, really any type of sin that would break personal relationships. It would break personal relationships. Moses is actually summarizing a law that's given in the book of Leviticus, chapter 6. It has to do with things like fraud, causing harm to a neighbor or his property through dishonesty, right? It's about interpersonal relationships in the camp. I mean, think about it here for a minute, okay? There's millions of people out in the middle of the desert. They really don't know where they're going and they're about to set out on a march toward this this place out there that God has promised them. Without a way to deal with personal squabbles, and feuds and infighting, they might destroy themselves before they ever get started. They'll never make it without a way to deal with the sin of broken relationships. And God has given them instructions for how to deal with it. The, the first step in dealing with their, their broken relationships between them is this, that the guilty must recognize their guilt. That's what Moses told them in our passage this morning. There must be a recognition of responsibility for the harm that's done. I mean, how many of us this morning have ever been wronged by someone who refused to acknowledge their guilt? Probably, it's true for all of us, right? There's no healing that can, that can happen ultimately unless someone acknowledges, hey, I wronged you, I'm guilty in that, right? There cannot be restoration without a recognition of guilt. The, the second step is that the guilty must confess her sin, right? We live in a world where, where um, mess-ups, mistakes, sin, we, we love to hide them, right? We love to sweep them under the rug, but God is saying to his people, among his people, we're not going to sweep sin under the rug. The guilty must confess. I mean, think about children understand this principle, right? I think about this all the time. I see it all the time with my boys, right? One, uh, one of my sons will do something against the other, and And we'll have have one son come to the other and say he's sorry. And he'll say something like, I'm sorry. Like, no, you're not. You're not really sorry. You're sorry you got caught. You're not sorry that you actually sinned against your brother. And so we help him confess his sin, right? Confession is, is key to restoration of broken relationships. A person cannot hide their guilt. Their sins must be confessed when they harm their neighbor, but then notice that God doesn't stop there. It's not enough just to say, I'm sorry, and will you forgive me? With broken relationships, God says restitution must be made. Restitution must be made. Now, of course, right, we, we get this. It's kind, of, it's kind of hardwired into us that if you do something to harm your neighbor, if you bring harm to him or his property, right, you need to fix what you broke, right? You need to replace what you Destroyed. That, that makes sense to us, but, but notice that God requires an even further step in this idea of making restitution. In this context, God requires an additional one-fifth or 20%, right? If you, if you cause your neighbor's barn to be burned down, it's not enough to go build him a new barn, right? You have to, you have to provide him an additional 20% of its value, let's say. As a as a sign of your remorse, that you're actually sorry and repentant for what you have done. And notice that even if the victim who you you brought harm to is deceased, that that doesn't even get you out of paying restitution. You have to pay the restitution plus the additional 20% to one of your, your victim's relatives. And even if he doesn't have any relatives, you still have to pay that price to the priest. Restitution must be made when relationships are broken. God cares about our interpersonal relationships. He cares when we sin against one another. He cares when we cheat, when we steal, and we lie to one another. And let's not be so, uh, so naive to think that that doesn't go on amongst us as God's people, right? We are the redeemed of God, but we are still fallen, right? We are still being sanctified. We, we break relationship with one another all the time. And God cares. He cares when we make choices that put our own interests above those of our neighbors, right? He cares about those things. And so it forces us to ask the question of ourselves this morning about our neighbors, the people sitting in this room, right? Are there broken relationships between any of you? What we see here in Numbers 5 is God's demand that we fix them, that we acknowledge our guilt, that we confess our sin, and even that we make restitution in the cases where it's appropriate. Have you caused harm to a brother or sister this morning? So these are the steps that God has called us to take to make that right. And, and in case you say, well, this is the Old Testament, not the New Testament, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, verses 23 through 24. It's gonna be on the screen. So if you were offering your gift at the altar, i.e., you're worshiping, right? You're here on a Sunday morning, you're singing God's praises, you're listening intently to the preached word, and there you remember Right? And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come, then come and offer your gift. God cares about our interpersonal relationships and the brokenness between them. But then there's a fourth step. There's a fourth step in restoring a broken relationship. The offender must offer a sacrifice of atonement for his sin against God. Now hold up. I thought, I thought that I, I, I harmed my neighbor. What does that have to do with God? The answer is everything. Did you catch what, what Moses said back in verse six? When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that people commit by what? By breaking faith with the Lord. Church, when we sin against one another, The ultimate offense is against God. It's against God. To be at odds with one another, to have brokenness in our relationships with one another, is to sin against God. This is why Jesus says in the New Testament when asked, what is the greatest commandment? Do you know what he says? What is the greatest commandment? He answers in kind of a strange way. He gives two commandments. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as you. Yourself To love God is to love neighbor. To love neighbor is to love God. To sin against one is to sin against the other. We cannot, we cannot be restored in our relationships with man without first being restored to God. Without first being restored to God. And Moses teaches us here that our sin against God, well, it requires a sacrifice of atonement. Requires a sacrifice of Of atonement, we might summarize it this way something or someone will have to die. Friends, this morning we have hope that there is one who has made such a sacrifice on our behalf, one who has paid for all of our transgressions against our neighbor and all of our transgressions against God. His name is Jesus. And through him, we have been restored both to God and to our neighbor. And just as Moses commanded the people in Numbers 5 to deal with their own brokenness, their own broken relationships, if we will acknowledge our guilt before God, that we have in fact sinned against our neighbor and done many other sinful things, if we confess our sin to him, acknowledging our guilt, and then look to Christ to ultimately pay our restitution to God. And we can be saved. Do you see, do you see the gospel right here? Yes, we still, have, we still have to make restitution to our neighbor. God still demands that we restore our neighbor and fix what we broke. But when it comes to our broken relationship with God, the only payment of restitution that will suffice is Christ, the one who paid our penalty. By faith in Jesus this morning, we can have salvation. And listen, if you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ to restore your broken relationship with God, I wanna invite you to do that. You You can follow these steps right here in Numbers 5. Admitting your guilt, confessing your sin, trusting in Jesus to make that payment to God on your behalf through his life, death, and resurrection. And you can be saved. The gospel is right here in Numbers 5. Well, this leads us this morning to our final, and certainly it's the most shocking picture of sin here in Numbers 5. And it's a a picture of sin as adultery. It's a picture of sin as adultery. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to read beginning in verse 11, and we'll read down, uh, let's read down to, I think, verse 15. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it's hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, excuse me, though she has not defiled herself, and the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her a tenth of any five barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. Now what in the world is going on there, right? What in the world is going on there? So once again, as we've been saying, God is giving us a picture of our sin, right? And, and specifically here, the command is regarding the, uh, outside of our relationship with Lord, the Lord, the most important relationship that we have as humans, and that's our relationship with our spouses, right? It's a command related to, to sexuality and to marriage. Now, there are two scenarios that we have to keep separate. We have to keep separate in our mind with this test for adultery, if you will. Scenario one is this a married woman, she commits adultery, she's not caught in the act, there are no witnesses, in other words. And if her husband suspects her infidelity and and he becomes jealous, like he suspects her and he's jealous for his wife. That's scenario one. Scenario two is a married man suspects that his wife has committed adultery, right? There are no witnesses or evidence yet. He's still jealous, even though she's truly innocent. She's innocent. She's not guilty. Now, the other thing that we need to pay attention to is the extreme nature of what's going on here. I mean, Set aside kind of the uh, the shockingness of this of this for us because we're we have Western minds and we live in a Western culture. Think about how desperate this couple must be to be in this situation. Right? If they've come to this point where they're going to go to a priest and have all of their uh, dirty laundry, so to speak, exposed, they're in dire straits. This is a this is a dire time in their marriage. I mean, even if the husband is wrong about his wife, if he's so suspicious of her that he's willing to take her and along, along with this offering and go and do this with the priest, like, things are bad. Things are really bad. This is an extreme situation. It's, and it's probably one of the reasons that this is the only account we have of it in the Bible. We don't have an actual account where we see this test for adultery played out. But either way, the way it works, the husband takes his wife, along with this grain offering of remembrance, and they go to the priest. But ultimately, Moses emphasizes here that the priest is going to set them before the Lord. They're going before God, before the Lord to find out the truth. We have to know the truth. They're at the end of their rope, and God is their only hope. So the priest, he he would mix a cup of water and dust from the tabernacle floor, He would unbind the woman's hair and and place the offering that they brought with them in her hands. And then the priest would ask her to take the oath of verses 19 through 22. It reads this, if no man has lain with you and you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Verse 20, but if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some other man, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away, and the woman shall say amen and amen. So in verses 23 to 28, the, the priest, he takes that curse that, that the woman has just voluntarily spoken over herself. He takes the, the curse and he writes it down on a book, probably on a piece of letter. And then he washes those words into the cup. The image is vivid here that, that we're actually taking these words of curse and, and she's going to ingest them. She's gonna take them into her body. He takes the, uh, the part of the, the offering that the couple brought with them and he, he burns it on the altar and then he instructs the woman to drink the cup. And, and the results are simple. If she is indeed guilty, it will bring the curses is, is most likely barrenness. But if she's innocent, nothing will happen. And the end of it, that's the end of it. What's the point of this? Why is this in Numbers 5? Why, why have pages of Holy Scripture been devoted to this? Well, to see this, the first thing that we have to keep in mind is this. And I've kind of already alluded to it. We cannot read this through our Western cultural eyes, right? Through our modern Western perspective. I mean, what we have here is something called, is something similar to a trial by ordeal. Trial by ordeal, where a person's guilt or innocence is is proven by some ritual, some uh, strange ritual. Now, uh, you might remember from school, for example, the Salem witch trials, A woman was suspected of witchcraft in 17th century New England, right? It was a barbaric practice. She would be thrown into the water. If she sank to the bottom, she was innocent. If she floated, she was guilty, right? She was guilty. But but either way, the woman's fate was bad. She, She died. It didn't matter whether she was guilty or innocent. She was going to die as a result of this barbaric practice in the Salem witch trials. And trials by ordeal, especially those in the ancient world around this time, they were very similar. They were barbaric. But that's not what this is. And we can't read it that way. I mean, think about this. Think about these differences. Here in Numbers, the woman actually agrees to this process. It's hard to, it's easy to miss, but it's in verse 22, right? She actually says, amen, amen, truly, truly to the curse, Right? She accepts the curse. She says it voluntarily. No one's holding a gun to her head, Further, only a woman who truly was guilty of adultery suffered the consequences. In this case here in Numbers 5, the innocent woman's fine. The innocent woman is fine. She gets her reputation back and she gets her husband's trust back. Think about this. According to God's law in Leviticus 20.10, both a man and a woman who are caught in the act of adultery, when there's actually evidence, there are witnesses, the penalty is death. The penalty is death there on the spot. And, and consider this, in the Old Testament world, and in many of the, the cultures surrounding God's people, women had zero rights. They had zero rights. Just the accusation of infidelity on a, on a woman outside of the people of God was enough for a husband to disown her, abandon her, and even worse, to have her put to death if he wanted to. He didn't need any reason, just suspicion. Just suspicion. But no, as strange as this seems, as, as overly patriarchal and even chauvinistic as we might like to read this, that's not what it is at all. This, is, this strange ritual is the act of a merciful God who is protecting probably the most vulnerable kind of people in the ancient world, and that's women. He's protecting them from false accusation and being punished for crimes that they didn't commit. The second thing that we need to notice about this that helps us see why it's here is that there's nothing magical in this water. This is not a Disney fairy tale, right? There's nothing magical about the water or the dust or the words that the priests wash into the cup. Nothing magical about it all. Remember I told you in the beginning, the priest sets the woman before the Lord. This is a miracle of God and a great demonstration of faith on behalf of the husband and the wife. They were saying in effect, God, we cannot solve this on our own. We need you to solve it. We're trusting you to solve it. We place ourselves in your hands. But then the third thing that we need to see about it is that this is a reminder of the sacredness of marriage. God is serious. He is serious about his people being sexually pure, about husbands and wives remaining faithful to one another for a lifetime. We often, uh, often as as modern Christians, we like to compartmentalize our lives, right? I have my work life, I have my church life, however you might draw these compartments up, right? So we say things like, my marriage is my problem and it's, none of, it's no one else's problem. It's none of your business, right? We like to say those kind of things. My, the problems in my marriage, they don't affect anybody. They don't affect anybody. But that's not the picture that we see here in the book of Numbers, is it? That's, that's not the picture. We don't see a picture of, of people carrying on quietly while their marriage relationships, their, their relationships with their spouses just disintegrate. But here here we see something different. Each marriage was a concern for the entire camp, for the the entire people. God's presence and their safety, right? Because God is holy and God will not be in the presence of sin. God's presence and their safety depended on the health within their marriages, within the relationship between husbands and wives. Marriage was foundational to their society. And we have seen the effects when the sanctity of marriage is violated as our own society falls apart, right? Remember, remember what God promised Abraham? Because this, this sacredness of marriage, it's, it goes even much further than that. Because God promised Abraham way back when three things to his people. Descendants, a land, and that through his descendants he would bless all the peoples of the earth. If their marriages fall apart, they can't possibly be a blessing to the nations because God intended their marriages to be a picture of his faithfulness to them. The the Old Testament is ripe with imagery of God as a faithful husband who is jealous for his wife, his people. And despite their constant infidelity, the fact that they worship all kinds of false gods and are constantly rebelling against him, God pursues them and he remains faithful to them. His faithfulness never wavers despite their constant faithlessness, their constant infidelity. Paul picks up on this truth in Ephesians chapter 5, right in the New Testament, when he teaches what? That marriage is a picture of the gospel. As husband and wife love each other sacrificially for a lifetime, and are are jealous, we don't like that word jealous because we think of like green envy, but that's not the same thing here. When you're jealous for something that is rightfully yours, like God's people are rightfully his, it's not the same as green envy. As we love each other as husbands and wives and sacrifice for each other over the course of a lifetime, Paul teaches us that we display the faithful love of God in Christ to us. The same is true in Numbers 5. If they don't take marriage seriously, they can't possibly be a blessing to the nations. They can't possibly declare God's faithfulness to them if they can't be faithful to one another, if they can't be faithful to their own spouses. Our marriages are a picture of the gospel. Julie and I, this year, will have been married for 10 years. I can't believe 10 years have gone by. And I know some of you in here, it's a really short time, but for me, my perspective, I can't believe it's been 10 years. There are parts of it that have gone by really fast. Like it's been incredible. There are parts of it that have been really hard, really difficult. And I'm sure I will say the exact same thing over the next 10 years. Some of you in here have been married longer than I have been alive. I'm well aware of that, right? And regardless regardless of how long you have been married, right? Regardless of of how, how wise you might think you are in marriage, we must take it seriously. We all need loving correction when we fail as husbands and wives. Sometimes we need to all humbly ask for help, right? Whether you've been married 30 years or five years, right? Sometimes we need to all humbly ask for help. And if you're not married, don't think for one minute that this passage here, this last part of Numbers 5, has nothing to say to you. Because if you're not married, this passage still demands sexual purity. Our faithfulness to our spouses, whether present spouses or future spouses, matters. With it, we either proclaim or we deny the gospel. We either proclaim or deny the gospel. But there's one last thing here in Numbers 5 that I want us to see this morning. It's one final idea that we can't miss, that that sort of ties everything together. This ritual, it points us to Christ. The only human relationship, as I've said, that is of greater importance than the one that we have with our spouses is the one that we have with God. And over and over, if we search the Scriptures We see that picture of God loving His people as a a faithful husband and His people respond with infidelity and unfaithfulness as as they run off with other people and worship other gods. They were adulterous. God was faithful. But you see, unlike the woman here in Numbers 5, unlike the woman here in Numbers 5 who is merely suspected of adultery, That's the whole point of them going, right? To find out if it's really true. Unlike her, who is only suspected of adultery, there is no doubt as to God's people's guilt and to all of our guilt. There is no doubt. We have been unfaithful to God. We are unfaithful to God. We commit spiritual adultery. We we run around... Seeking fulfillment, pleasure, comfort, and security in all kinds of things and people. When God has set himself forth and says, hey, find those things in me. Like a, like a cheating spouse who instead of finding delight and pleasure in the one who loves us, who rescued us and made us his own, we mess around with all kinds of lovers, don't we? Our comfort our reputations, our jobs, our bank accounts, and on and on and on the list could go, right? Our hearts are our idol factories, these little false gods that we create and worship. But here's the deal. If we must stand before God, like this woman here in Numbers 5, if we must stand before God and take the cup of the curse to prove our innocence... We fail. We fail and we all die. But church, we know one who's taken our place. The cup here in Numbers 5 should remind us of another cup that we talk of often, right? Paul says in Galatians 3.13, he says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ has taken our place. He has stepped in in the middle of our own test for adultery that we would have all failed and taken the cup into his hand, the cup of death that we all deserved, and he has drank it down to the bottom. Despite our adultery, our spiritual adultery, our unfaithfulness to God, his love for us was so great that he drank the cup of God's wrath all the way down to the bottom on the cross. His faithfulness, just like His touch healed the unclean, has overcome our unfaithfulness. His love for us has overcome our spiritual infidelity so that by faith, we might find forgiveness in Him. Friends, the the point of Numbers 5 is ultimately to cast us forward to the gospel, to the truth of Christ. That in Christ, we have a cure for our impurities. That that his touch will make us clean. That in Christ, we have an atoning sacrifice for our broken relationships. And in Christ, we have a savior who takes our curse and offers us forgiveness. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, what a, what a strange, strange passage. But I am, I am reminded over and over again as we tackle these hard passages just of the beauty of Scripture that you and your providence have, have woven Christ into every word, to every sentence, on every page. Father, thank you for showing us our Savior this morning one who, is, who, who brings us healing, who offers us restoration for all the ways that we've sinned against one another and that has offered us forgiveness for the way that we have been unfaithful to you. Father, above all things, would you help us to be a gospel people who place our hope and our faith in Christ alone. He is our only hope this morning. And so we ask, We ask that you would keep the gospel near and dear to our hearts and that you would, as we leave in a few moments, send us from this place as people who have been radically changed and radically forgiven to declare this same hope to a world that desperately needs us. Help us in these things for the glory of our Savior Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.